the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by reporter Ested Herndon. For the past four years, Herndon has covered national politics for the New York Times. Before that, he was a city hall reporter at the Boston Globe. But his work came to prominence during the 2020 election, where he spent most of the year on the road, talking with voters from all walks of life. You may have read some of his dispatches in the paper of record, or heard them on the hit podcast, The Daily, where he's been a frequent contributor. With the midterm elections only six weeks away, Herndon has launched a new podcast for The Times called The Run-Up. The show is in the spirit of what Herndon calls grassroots reporting, which focuses less on the politicians running for office and more on the voters that will put them there. Historically, the midterms are a referendum on the party in power. But this year, the show argues, is about so much more. And that more is the focus of our conversation today, as we discuss the key voting blocks across the country, how Democrats and Republicans are approaching the Latino electorate, the existential questions that each party faces this November, the fragility of democracy itself, and why Ested, as a young black reporter from the Midwest, is uniquely qualified to cover these turbulent times. But before we could do any of that heavy analysis or prognostication, Ested was in need of a comfortable seat. 
Inside the New York Times office, I watched over Zoom as he searched far and wide for that coveted chair. And as he did so, I started recording. I hope you enjoy. There we go. It's like, they think in this, you think in this room they'd have actual functional chairs and not like fake lounge tiny ones, but here we go. Is this a call to the union? Do, do you need union help? <laughs> uh, you know, it wouldn't be the New York Times if your workplace drama didn't play out for all of Twitter to read. <laughs> it's just another day at the job. <laughs> and we are happy to have you. Um, let's just jump right in. Estet Herndon, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I've been looking forward to this. I'm doing better now. Thank you for having me. You've been looking forward to it. Is that true? I'm looking forward to anything that does not involve actively thinking about the midterm election. So the mere fact that we're having like some small talk before is already the light of my day. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to tell you this, but we are going to talk about the midterm elections. I had some suspicion, but at least we're building there and not just starting there. So I'll take what I can get. You and I are both from Chicago. I generally like to position myself as the Jordan of this podcast. <laughs> I thought maybe I would take the Pippin role and you take Jordan on this one. Oh, well, that's awfully kind of you. You know, I really think of myself as a Bill Winnington character. So, you know, <laughs> I'll take Jordan when I could get it. <laughs> There's that meme that's like men just sit around naming old sports players. Here we are. <laughs> and we're not even that old. Imagine us 15 years from now. Yeah, still naming bulls players, probably. (laughs) Okay, let me be more serious with this. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, since the midterms are coming up, let's dive into this new podcast you launched at the New York Times called The Run-Up. You're talking to policymakers, fellow reporters, and most importantly, voters to understand this upcoming election cycle. But I want to set the stage for a moment with a passage from your first episode The stakes. Why don't we take a listen? It has been a relentlessly disorienting time. With demographic shifts that are increasingly changing the country's makeup. Social movements that have changed cultural norms almost overnight. The explosion of new technology and misinformation that's amplified our divisions. Add to that a global pandemic widespread inequality, and rampant inflation. And through all of this, the political system has struggled to keep up. Now, you spent the better part of the 2020 election traveling around the country, talking to voters, reporting for The Times. As you've started doing this reporting again around the midterms, what are you hearing from voters now that you didn't hear in 2020? I think the biggest thing, and I think we say this in that stakes episode too, is that, you know, people have really bought into the Joe Biden construction of America's problems, at least people who voted for Joe Biden, to say that the removal of Donald Trump would bring some sort of like calmness, stability to politics. And I think that like while a lot of people maybe scoffed at that in the early primary and certainly kind of like gut-checked him on it. By the time we are getting to the 2020 election, particularly during the pandemic, particularly after a Black Lives Matter summer, I was hearing from folks left and right that like they were hoping that a vote for Biden was a return to normal. And I think what I hear now is pretty much a recognition that that 
is not coming back and that what was seen as the threats of the Trump era, democracy under attack or misinformation or cultural divisions on racial, you know, gender or sexuality lines, that those weren't just Donald Trump driven, that those are really America questions. And I think that like, as you know, that first episode deals, you know, we talked to a lot of people who felt so bummed out by politics. When you dig into talking with them, that was really because of that, because it was clear that our divisions were going nowhere. And for a lot of people, I think that they really maintained some hope, like the president did, I would say, that those were divisions that were really wrapped up in an individual. And I think it's clear at this point they're not. One of the key differences that have developed over the last two years is something you just mentioned, which is the future of democracy. A new poll has found that 69% of Democrats and 69% of Republicans believe democracy is in danger of collapse. So for once, both sides actually agree on something. They just don't agree on who's to blame. Democrats point the finger at former President Trump and MAGA Republicans. The GOP says President Biden and the Socialist Democrats are the ones responsible. How do you make sense of both that poll, but also this recurring sentiment around the fragility of democracy, which you've been hearing from from voters? I think that that poll tracks with our reporting, which is that people really feel a sense of anxiety, a sense of frustration. You know, I do think people are in the throes of of democracy, anxiety, despair adjacent because those threats are very real. I think that like we can put it in the partisan kind of construction and definitely politically when we think about the midterms. Democrats are going to point the finger at Republicans and Republicans are going to point the finger at Democrats. But I think we should say journalistically that this isn't like fully both sides issue. You know, Republicans and Donald Trump were the ones who stopped to try to block the peaceful transfer of power and led a violent insurrection at the Capitol to do so. I think that we should say specifically that it's Republicans who have been elevating uh, candidates throughout the primaries who jived with Trump's grievances and his attack on democracy, that they didn't just excuse those actions. They actually promoted people who espoused those actions. You know, and I think this midterms has to wrestle with is the fact that that is both a clear change within the Republican Party and also that that change has not been universally rejected by voters. It has not marginalized them. And what does that say to me is the question. To tackle that, we actually thought we had to ask a bigger question, which is the part of the reason we wanted to talk to Jim Clyburn and wanted to talk with Robert Draper, a reporter on The Times Magazine, is not to say, is democracy on the ballot? Because I think that answer is clearly yes. To me, the question I don't think we have an answer to is how big is our commitment to democracy? How much of democracy is actually core to the experiment that we talk about? And that, to me, is the unclear part. Uh, democracy is on the ballot in the words of Democrats and Republicans. It is just that Republicans have gone to the point now they are explicitly attacking democracy as something that's not even core to the country's values. So let's talk about the voters going to the ballot box. As you've waded into this upcoming election cycle, you've pinpointed four types of voters that will be pivotal come November. The first is the skeptical Trump voter. Who is that person? 
Yeah, yeah. And that piece, we were really talking about four different voters who we talked to over the uh, throughout our reporting for that first couple episodes. And that was a voter who we kicked off our episode with, Belinda, who was actually someone who so believes Trump's conspiracy and falsehoods about elections being stolen that she was actually debating whether to participate in these elections and back these Republicans because she doesn't trust the voting system. And so they are not skeptical of Trump, but that is someone who is skeptical of anyone but Trump. And that is someone who Republicans need to rally behind these new slate of candidates. That's really a type of voter that's driving the direction of the Republican Party. So not only in primaries have they backed candidates that, you know, kind of espouse Trumpism, but they are holding Republican nominees' feet to the fire to make sure they continue that rhetoric throughout this march to the general election. And so we started with that voter partially because they are driving and creating litmus tests that Republican candidates are responding to because they have such fealty to Trump and his grievances that they're actually forcing the candidates and thus the party to follow that also. Now, if that person changed, if that person started souring on Trump, if that person backed off of those election conspiracies, there will be a lot more room for the Republican Party to wiggle with. But as of now, because that person has remained so loyal, it has actually made sure that the establishment cannot stray too far from the base because they haven't budged. That's the person we're talking about. But that skeptical Trump voter, they didn't exactly come out in the Georgia Senate runoff in early 2021, right? Yeah. And I think that was the risk, right? I mean, being called a rhino or, or insufficiently Trumpy isn't a hollow threat. If more Republicans would have come out to support their Georgia Senate candidates, they probably would have won. They didn't come out in Georgia specifically because those candidates, they did not trust on this message. They did not believe on this message. I spent all this time in Georgia. And there was a whole bunch of people yelling at Purdue, yelling at Leffler, saying they weren't going hard enough on the Trump conspiracy. And so, yeah, they didn't really show up in that race. But that's actually been a lesson for a lot of Republican candidates about reasons why you cannot assume that voter will back anyone with an R next to their name. They're backing people who are specifically following that Trump viewpoint. And you think voters nominating 150 different Trump candidates is their way of learning that lesson? I think they've learned that lesson in a lot of ways. But yeah, the primaries are the clearest one. If you're Republicans, it's not that you can only win with hardcore Trump voters, but you cannot win without hardcore Trump voters. And so... Republican candidates are basically made a bet. They appease the most energetic portion of their base. The other portions of people who vote for Republicans may come along for other reasons. I mean, they have totally learned the lesson of the primaries, whether intentionally or not, that the most important figure in Republican politics is still Donald Trump by a large degree. The next group you've been focusing on is the young voter, a group that President Biden hopes to make inroads with after recently passing climate reform and canceling billions of dollars in student debt. Unpack this group for us. I mean, I think that, like, this is the type of people who Democrats need to motivate, right? A typical midterms idea is that Democrats have a better presidential coalition than in midterms because during the midterms, groups like young people, groups like working class people, minorities, we know these are not, groups that are totally distinct and have a lot of overlap, that they don't come out to the same degree. It's not that they don't come out. 
but their drop-off numbers fall, and the hardest core portions of the Republican base, numbers don't fall off as much, which hurts Democrats. To overcome that structural disadvantage, there has been a thought that has emerged more in Democratic politics, which is that not that you have to just appease, that's a reason to just appease moderates and swing voters and forget about the base, but actually you should change it. You should follow through on your campaign promises so that more of those people actually come out in midterms, you know? And part of what we're seeing is a test case of that this year. You had Joe Biden, frankly, go a little bigger on things like student debt than a lot of people expected him to, partially because they are hoping there is an electoral payoff for those decisions. That is a thing that we don't know how that's going to play out. It could be that doing things like student loans have really transformed his image and in doing so really makes people more excited about him than they would have been otherwise. We've seen his approval rating tick up uh, in recent months, partially because Democrats feel a little better about Joe Biden than they did over the summer. That's what they're hoping, is that in doing those actions, they rally a base behind a president that needs that as a minimum. Democrats can't only win their most important races through their base, but they certainly cannot win if they don't have a motivated base. And certainly Dobbs and the removal of Roe is the biggest motivating factor here. But in terms of what Joe Biden can control, we have seen some actions this year doing executive orders on climate change, that climate legislation, student loan debt, that are centered at trying to fulfill those promises so that they can clear those first initial bars that are necessary for Democrats to have success in midterms. The last two groups are the disillusioned Democrat and the non-MAGA Republican. What kinds of voters fit into these categories? Yeah, these are our classic moderates, our classic swing voters. I mean, and we're both kind of who what we were hearing in our reporting, you know, feeling increasingly politically homeless, feeling like the parties have drifted in directions they don't like. And that usually comes down to a couple things. On the Republican side, a feeling that Donald Trump and the anti-democratic lurch from Republicans is too extreme. And on the Democratic side, we often hear complaints about Democrats embracing cultural directions that the folks don't like. The new language on race post Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, an embrace of like LGBTQ equality that has sent some, some people in wrong directions. And this is what the other parties try to seize on, right? So Republicans are going to pitch to squishy Democrats. Hey, you might think Donald Trump's annoying, but don't you think the way Democrats talk right now make white people feel bad? That's a reason to vote for us. While Democrats will say to moderate Republicans, yeah, you might think the way we talk about race and culture is annoying, but isn't the way Donald Trump talks about democracy worse than anything else, right? Both parties are trying to try to seize on those openings. But I think that like people hold contradictory views. And so it's not often that when you're talking to voters and we're talking to regular people, they don't feel like completely represented. What I think is actually changing here is whether that is an accepted difference within the party or what is unacceptable for a Democrat. What does that mean? Do Democrats believe that there's space for pro-life Democrats in the party? Or is that a value that they should not compromise on? Is there an issue that Democrats should universally say that if you don't believe this, the party won't back you? that this is actually a core tenet of what it means to be a Democrat or a core tenet of what it means to be a Republican. For a long time, there was a kind of political understanding. There might be largely shared issues. You got to allow people on the margins to believe other things because that kind of helps the party largely. 
and that that reflects the kind of diversity of the base. But I think we're seeing increasingly people, rightly or wrongly, saying that that's not maybe a thing the party should do. Maybe the party should say, if you're backing like oil producers, that's not a democratic value. You know, that's, I think that's an open question that's happening among both parties right now. Within that group of disillusioned Democrats are lots of Asian, Black, and Latino voters that the Democratic Party has long believed would simply vote for them by dint of not being a Republican. This was especially true in the 2020 election, where pundits predicted a backlash from Latinos at the polls, especially after four years of Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies. And yet, the data shows that there was an 8% point swing toward Trump between 2016 and 2020. We didn't explicitly mention Latinos in those four voter categories, but given that they've become the fastest growing voting bloc in the U.S., how have both parties, Democrat and Republican, been thinking about this electorate? I think this is a core kind of point into understanding how parties were really unprepared for this current moment. You know, in our second episode, we really explore how the idea of demographic destiny really took hold of both Democrats and Republicans. What does that mean? That was the belief that because of the demographic changes in America, the racial changes in America driven by Latino voters and their growth in terms of share of the electorate, that that meant Democrats would just win national elections because those incoming populations were over going to overwhelmingly be Democrats. And increasingly less white. And increasingly less white. That really informed, for the eight years of the Obama era, Democratic overconfidence. Not only that they were all good for presidential elections, but they could actually behave in that manner because Republicans were just ill-fit for the ways that the country was changing racially. And so both political parties, Democrat and Republicans, deeply believed a false story, largely about Latino voters, that they were going to be inherently Democrats based on really scant evidence and really, I would say, racist assumptions. They didn't do the basic work to understand the diversity among the population, that Mexicans in California are not like people who live on border in Texas, and that's not inherently the same as Puerto Ricans in Florida. That is something that we are not, that is now set in as political conventional wisdom, but for 25 years was not seen as such. And so I think you really had two parties really behaving on the assumption that Democrats were well-positioned, as James Carville said, to win for 40 years straight. I think at this point now, you have two parties that really understand that that isn't just inherently true about Latino voters. And that that means that, you know, Democrats have to invest in those communities. They have to have candidates that reflect those communities' concerns. And they have to talk about issues that go beyond immigration. But I think that that is only a recent thought and not something that had was done 20 years ago because those assumptions were so deeply rooted. Your colleague at The New York Times, Jennifer Medina, said, there's been this sort of pervasive notion that Latinos are a voting block, that there's some sort of monolithic vote that will overwhelmingly favor one party or another. And though there's been that pervasive sort of conventional wisdom, it's never been borne out in the data. Absolutely. And, you know, I love Jenny on that point because it's so fundamental to understanding this. Parties shaped decisions based on bad assumptions and then were shocked when they went wrong. And what they never did in those steps was really stop to do the basic work of understanding these new electorates. 
And I would really say, if we're going to go this a step further, that's not even in that episode, that I think this applies to Black voters also. I think that there has been a misunderstanding of why Black voters uniquely are a monolith and have voted for Democrats in big numbers, right? That's a unique thing among Black communities that I think a lot of political establishment has just taken for granted and really not understood that there's a uniqueness about that population that makes that story more complicated too. You know, what? really what I'm trying to do in this show is affirm where voters are and where people are because I think like there can be some idea that all of a sudden politics just shifted. And I think it's actually really important to tell people like, no, you didn't just miss something. It's actually that the political parties, media, establishment was not prepared and therefore did not prepare you. And do you think you're prepared? Me personally? Or do you think my journalism is helpful in preparing people? <laughs> Both. I mean, it's up for other people to decide of the journalism. I would like to think that we are helping bridge a gap of knowledge and that I, I, I hope that this podcast is something that makes politics more tangible and understandable to people. I'm trying to take things that are just a political insider thing and make it feel accessible to public who I really think should have political journalism that speaks to them in their language. But am I personally ready for that? You know, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think I did work in that election that's proved, that said that something like January 6th was possible. Right. When January 6th happened, like I was in Georgia being like, you know, I was pointing to stories. I had done a, a series about white grievance in 2019 where I had talked to so many people who ended up actually being on the Capitol at that day. I knew those people. And so all I'm saying is I haven't been surprised in the direction it has gone, but I really feel like we have a political language that has not even armed people with the necessary tools to answer the questions I think American politics is headed to. I think what you're basically getting at is that the language around elections often reduces voters and oversimplifies both the voters themselves and the issues they care about. Yeah. And that you are trying to wade into the messiness of these elections in a way that is human and complicated and sometimes contradictory. Mm -hmm. And I actually think in doing so, it feels more genuine to people than the inverse, because I think that's a lot of the reasons why political journalism has felt so distant to people. It's because oftentimes it has been, you know, the people have been re really just writing stories for their insider community. And so what I'm trying to say is like, if there is anything that I think the last five to six years has taught us, it's that that isn't enough. We actually haven't given people the proper info to even think about the political questions we are seeing now. If I can show things to people, if I can talk to both an insurrectionist and a Black pastor who makes Biden win, what is it that they're both sharing? Is that democracy anxiety? And if I share that too, which I do, then that should be what we're driving at. That's the shared agreement among everyone. And I think that that, to me, is the deepest question that like our kind of election reporting has to get at is as we say, and I'm just repeating our trailer now, is like not just who's going to win, but placing that election in the larger story of where we're headed. After the break, more from Estad Herndon of The New York Times. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked. 
and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Coming back, I think the oversimplification 
is not just a mainstream media problem, but something that was part and parcel of President Joe Biden's mission statement, which was to restore the soul of the nation, to unify this country as a whole on the heels of January 6th, as you alluded to. That's what he ran on back in 2020. But in a speech earlier this month in Philadelphia, he changed his tune. Why don't we take a listen? Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. How have you squared away this change message from President Biden, from from a man running on unifying our country to a president explicitly name-checking sections of the electorate? I think this was always a tension of the Joe Biden candidacy. He spoke directly to what voters' was number one concern was, which was beating Donald Trump, more so than any other candidate. He started there, he ended there, whatever, whatever. But his original articulation was that beating Donald Trump was the solution. And that never made sense to me. <laughs> that just literally made no sense to me. I was in um, D.C. and he did a roundtable of Black reporters. It's before the Iowa caucus. Yes, before the Iowa caucus. And like Biden was considered an underdog by people who discount Black people. But not me. <laughs> I'm glad you're throwing that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was an underdog if you just didn't think black voters existed. He was not if you know that they do. And I asked him at this roundtable, I was like, even if you beat Trump, why would Republicans treat you different than they treated Barack Obama? How are you so sure this epiphany is coming? And he said, I can't I wish I had this on tape, but he said something that like really amount, like mostly amounted to, I am popular in their states in a way Barack Obama is not. Those Republicans know there would be consequences for like kind of crossing me politically. So they're going to have to come around because doing so would face electoral consequences. That was a ridiculous thought. <laughs> you know, like that's a, that's a view of Republicans and his relationship to the Republican base. It's probably 20 years old. Mitch McConnell's base, it's not a matter of one Democrat versus another. They don't like Democrats. And he was assuming this change of mind and epiphany that was based in way old evidence. I remember doing the daily episode on the day of the inauguration, and I was in Charlottesville. His inauguration speech is right after the 6th. And if there's any moment that's going to bring about that epiphany on the Republican side, it's probably January 6th. And he positioned his inauguration speech as such. It is an open arm to them to come on over, away from Trump and Trumpism. But... There is a thing that people do, which I think is really based on the haughtiness, where they act like Trump supporters don't believe what they say. And if merely the right type of person gives them the right type of pitch, they will abandon this thing that they secretly really don't believe for this other thing. 
and actually find that kind of insulting. They believe it. <laughs> they do not like Democrats. They think Joe Biden is bringing on socialism to this country. They think the coalition that powers Joe Biden is an affront to America and democracy. They say it all the time. I've been there and I asked them. They don't care about your unity pitch. And so to me, when he was making that, even as early as the inauguration, it was always going to face a reality check because he was basing that pitch off of evidence that was outdated and he didn't know it. I think what we, what we saw as of three weeks ago or at the beginning of this month is him dealing with that information. And as Republicans promoted big liars, quote unquote, in the Republican primary, as Donald Trump has remained a deeply important figure in the Republican Party, as January 6th is now being defended by the most energetic parts of the Trump base, he has to reckon with the clear fact that his unity pitch has been rejected. And so I think what we are seeing now is the version of unity that those folks in Charlottesville were asking for as early as the inauguration, which was to say, actually, the thing that Americans need to do is unite against these people and reaffirm that democracy commitment. That's where he's landed. That's not where he started. Now that he's landed there, two and a half months before the midterms, do you think the Democratic Party will run with that newfound message? Uh, I think they're going to try. <laughs> and I think that that's pretty clear in these midterms, right? Most of the governor candidates are making democracy pitches. Secretary of State races. Biden has given them a universal message that they can cling on. Uh, he's also given them policy to run on and all of that other stuff. I'm not trying to say that stuff doesn't matter. But I definitely think there is a shared language that Democrats have about defending democracy that has been aided by Joe Biden's words, but also by Republicans themselves, right? Republicans have now promoted candidates who are saying more explicit stuff, attacking democracy in a more explicit way, which has allowed Democrats to make this pitch to voters in a clear way. So I think definitely the party has arrived at defending democracy as a political message that they want to use for this midterms, and that only one party can be trusted in the halls of government, and that's why you should vote for Democrats. The problem for Democrats is that we do not have a 50 plus one democracy. And so they can make that pitch, win over a majority of voters, Republicans can still win the House in that scenario. Explain that. Gerrymandering, which seats are, which seats are drawn, how people retire, actually matters a lot more than just getting the most votes in House races. Democrats will probably get more votes than Republicans in November. We only have 30 races that really matter because of the way the maps are drawn, because of which people retire, and because we really have state legislatures that are empowered to be just as important as voters in terms of who wins the House. The question of who wins the House is deeply tied to who controls state legislatures. And that answer in the most important states is Republicans. And so Democrats have arrived at this democracy message. At the same time, those democracy structures are hampering them from responding. And so that's what I feel like is the tension here. By the time they have gotten to the message, they are already playing catch up. And that message is one of shifting away from unity and, and restoring the soul of this nation. Basically, the big tent approach has collapsed. But I'm curious, because you were alluding to this earlier, in regards to your work, 
it seems to have similar kinds of aims in terms of inclusivity. You have a quote. You said, there's a lot of political media and noise out there, but there's not actually a lot out there that deals with our commitment to democracy. There's not a lot out there that is framed from the basis of voters' concerns being justified. And so with the country as divided as it is, as you and I have discussed, what makes you optimistic that you can make a show where everyone can be part of the discussion, where a wide range of voters have their concerns properly reflected in a New York Times podcast? I don't know. I mean, I think I'm good at journalism. And that's the answer. You know, I think neither party has a monopoly on truth. To me, I'm not doing this show as like a means of bringing the country together. My goal is to do journalism that names and affirms, it actually gives the reasons why voters of all types feel this way. And I think that on the Republican side, on the Democratic side, on gender lines, on race lines, on all of those things, there are actually things that you can highlight that I think just cut across those D versus R dichotomy. What I trust, doing grassroots-focused election reporting, unites the base of DNR a lot more than the other options. D.C. isn't about regular people. How decisions are made in D.C. isn't about regular people, right? The White House, Congress, that's the stuff where insider stuff does matter because that's how they're coming to decisions. Elections are about everybody else and how they're receiving that stuff. And what I trust is if we turn the lens back at everyone else and how they're receiving that stuff, that will make us unique enough where voters of all types can come to it. Granted that we're fair. Granted that we're not lecturing. I think the mere act of telling voters what establishment has missed about them is actually an affirming thing across D versus R basis. Do you think this investment in basically everyone else, as you've said, is rooted in the fact that you are 30 years old? 29. Don't make me 30. <laughs> is rooted in the fact that you are 29 years old, a proud millennial, and most importantly, perhaps less tied to a vision of how things used to work in political reporting, which in a time where the rules of politics have been upended and rewritten, perhaps makes you uniquely qualified for this moment. Certainly, the answer to the question is yes. I do think I'm a little more, I'm definitely more willing to kind of mold break and to see the new rules for what they are because I am less tethered to the old rules. But I gotta say, like, I don't think that's just age identity. I think that is a lot of things, honestly. I think that is working class family. I think that's blackness. I think that's Midwesternness. You know, I feel like I have a lot of identities that are often lost in political journalism. And so I feel like it is, for me, such a like core mission that we have to make something that sounds like it's for people, that doesn't talk in shorthand, that starts with moments that people actually feel my like kind of militant mission on that is definitely because of my own life, my own experiences, and the communities I care a lot about. Like I get all these questions about like what it's like to be black at Trump rallies, which, you know, is a question that's a fair ask. And then I'm like, I bond with some of these people with other stuff. 
Like, we both think, like, these fancy school kids are lecturing at us, you know? My willingness and my desire, my kind of feeling that it is a mandate to change the way politics journalism is talked about is absolutely because of those identities. But I would say it's not just age. The danger of the single story has long been a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned those Trump rallies. I want to sit with them because you have this quote. You said, I tell young Black journalists... The emotional labor part is really real. I'm not going to lie to you and say that being a black person going to Trump rallies is a swimming experience. You have to decide in your head that you care enough about this output, that I'm releasing myself from all the other shit I'm going to have to take in the process. It's a wild way to live your life. (laughs) Did I say that? (laughs) In, In thinking about that, I wonder for you, Why is this work still worth the pain? Before I was a Black reporter, I was a Black person. The pain is also a mission. In the same way that all of those things happen, I have also experienced a lot of things in life that have made me positioned to be able to really navigate things like a Trump rally. I find it to be a real responsibility to do something with that. I didn't want to become a journalist because of how political journalism was functioning. Or like because I thought it talked to my communities or because I thought it talked, spoke to me. But I did it because I believe in the value of the profession to do those things, even if they have not been realized. The reason to do it is because I think I can do it in ways that actually do tell people new things, that do actually explain a country that people deserve answers to and arm people with the right tools to come to answers themselves. The ways in which it is hard are also ways in which it's motivating, because I do not want it to be that just white people who feel comfortable at those things get to go and report about those things. As a Black reporter, as a young reporter, I should not only have to write about Black people and millennials. That's not acceptable to me. I think that I should be able to write about everybody. And if you are a political reporter and you don't go to Trump rallies, or you haven't been to a Trump rally, uh, what you reporting on? You know, like, how would, you, how would you understand the core political driving force of this country? The country deserves political journalism that is honest and explicit about the most important issues. And I think most of political journalism is willfully ignorant about the most important and explicit, about the most important issues. I intend to not be. <laughs> My last two questions for you as we leave. In episode two of your show, you unpack an autopsy for the Republican Party, which came after losing the presidential election in 2012, some of which you've shared here with me. But if the Democrats were to lose the House, the Senate, or both in the upcoming midterms, what do you think that autopsy would look and sound like? I mean, really, I think if the Republicans did an autopsy in 2012, Democrats basically did an autopsy in 16. I mean, that was Democrats' big autopsy moment. This year, if they lose, I mean, it depends on where and how. If the reversal of Roe v. Wade is not enough for them to motivate voters and specifically women in core states they need for Senate races, that will be a massive failure politically. They can create reasons for the House. The House, they have some structural problems. And I think, like, you're increasingly seeing Democrats take aim at those structures because of that. 
you're seeing Democrats talk about ending the filibuster, removal of electoral college, you know, uh, a passing a, a Voting Rights Act to like limit gerrymandering. All of these things are partially because the, the post-2016 autopsy has told them they have deep structural issues that they underrated in the Obama era. But I don't think the autopsy now would be much different than it has, than the slow erosions we've seen over the last years, which is that like Democrats cannot assume that they've hit a floor with white voters and particularly rural white voters, particularly non-college white voters, and particularly white men. It can get worse, and that matters. It's actually deeply important that Obama keep a, a, a minimal group of rural Wisconsinites with him to be able to win the state in other places. They are bottoming out in a lot of those places. And if they have a midterm elections that goes the way the scenario does, it will probably be because, at least on one hand, they continue to bottom out. And it will probably be because they continue to either not motivate Black voters to come out enough or have continued their erosion with Hispanic and Latino voters. I mean, it's just the inverse of the memo Republicans wrote in 2012, which is that there is deep erosion with white voters and Democrats, and that can get worse. And if they cannot overcome that with other populations, or if the country's segregation is such where all of those new minority voters are located only in blue states, and so they're not getting them spread across to win Senate races, that is a deep problem for Democrats because the structures of government already put them at a disadvantage. The Electoral College, the Senate, gerrymandering has already put them at a disadvantage. They have to overcome those. And if they mess up on those two categories, they are either falling further and further behind. My last question for us. Last March, you interviewed Senator Warnock of Georgia for The Times. Warnock, of course, is up for re-election against Republican Herschel Walker. But upon his election, Warnock, in a sermon, insisted that Trump and Trump voters were a dying breed. And as that piece ended that you did for The Daily. You said, I guess the question to me is, was Trump the last grasp of a world order that is waning? Or is the aberration this democratic moment that actually this election, Joe Biden's victory, and this moment of optimism from liberals, is that what is actually an aberration? And the Republican long-term game to win power just through their core constituencies, is that going to be the thing that lasts? And I guess I wonder, a year removed from that interview, and now about two months from the midterms, which do you think will be the aberration? That's a good dramatic ending on our part. I'm happy to hear that. But I, it's also too rigid, right? The answer is definitely somewhere in the middle. The trend is further from where Warnock was positioning in that speech. And that's not because Democrats have somehow lost the majority of Americans, or Republicans have convinced the majority of Americans that, you know, the election was stolen. What we saw on January 6th and in that, in that 2020 moment was that a minority of radicalized, anti-democratic individuals can upend our politics and particularly can control a party. A year and a half later, that control of the party is still there and they have hardened, too. Carrie Lake is articulating messages not even Donald Trump said in 2020. Tim Michaels in Wisconsin is going further than where 
even some Republicans were. Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene will have more power if Republicans take back the House. So the problem is for Warnock and for most liberals who had that construction, they assumed that the rules of the game were fair and fixed. And they are neither of those things. The rules can be changed and democracy is not stable. It's not a fixed thing. To me, what began as a presidency that was framed around a Republican epiphany after Donald Trump's removal has really landed in a place where it's Democrats who are having the epiphany. For some of the country, albeit a minority, democracy is not as big of a value as they thought. That minority can still drive politics. I don't remember the fullness of Warnock's speech, but I don't think those realities match with that optimism. The biggest proof example is in Warnock's race himself, where a candidate in Herschel Walker, who's done the bare minimum and just merely reflected Donald Trump's words, still might beat him, still might beat Warnock. He's currently tied in polling as of yesterday. If we're asking, like, how, how has the politics moved since that episode? I think it's moved away from Warnock. Which leaves us in a very precarious place. Precariousness is our future. Well, you were worried that uh, we were going to end on uh, a dramatic note, but despite the precarity of our future, despite this sort of grim projection that you've presented, I want to say I think you rose above Cartwright and Wennington and turned in a Jordan performance. <laughs> there is nothing uh, better to hear than uh, uh, a good old Bulls compliment. I appreciate this. I appreciate y'all hanging out and asking great questions. Estad Herndon, uh, thank you for the show. Thank you for coming on. And I hope you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Warnock, let's check in in the year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Bet. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. That's our show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Estad Herndon for coming on. You can listen to his new show, The Run Up, wherever you get your podcasts. To listen and to read more of Estad's work at the New York Times, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll find a back catalog of over 250 episodes, including talks with Ezra Klein, Margot Jefferson, Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Gay, Neil Katyal, Sarah Nelson, and Dr. James Whitfield. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support us in other ways, the best thing you can do is really just share the show with a friend. The other thing you can do is review the program on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. Reviewing the show on these platforms, or really just giving us five stars, is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Salmon, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday with a new episode featuring poet Sandra Cisneros. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.